All right. If you guys want to get your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis 46 and 47 today. Genesis 46 and 47. Tyler already summed up in his exhortation today the end of chapter 45 where Israel, Judah, pronounces that it's enough. It's everything that my son is alive. I'll go and see him. And now he's going to begin his trek from the land of Canaan to Egypt. And so what we're going to do is we've got to cover 46 and 47 this morning. So I'm going to, I'm going to read 46, but I'm going to jump around a little. I'm going to skip some stuff, and I'll tell you what I'm skipping, but I want you to try to follow along. And then Elsbeth's going to jump right in, and she's going to pick up at the beginning of 47. And so stick with it. If you're sleepy, there's tables in the back. You can stand, or you can just stand wherever you want. Just whatever you got to do to kind of keep yourself awake, um, please feel free to do that. So this mic's on. Before I start to read, let me have an interruption. That light mic is on. So you ready? All right. All right, here we go. Genesis Chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The son of, sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had set him to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now this next big section is naming everybody that came. So you got the twelve tribes, the, the twelve sons are, are listed here. Leah is here, Dinah's here, Rachel's here, and then all their grandkids. So let's just skip down for the sake of time to verse 27. The last sentence in verse 27 says, All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So we got 70 people going with him. And then we get to verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet, his fa- to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him. And fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me, and the men are shepherds. For they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, 
My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojournings. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his fathers, his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now, there was no food in all of the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of the livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we will with our land be servants of Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to, to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day. 
that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So this morning, God wants to talk to us about fear about fear. I don't know if you're a fearful person. I don't know whether you struggle with anxiety and worry over things. I'm not talking about fear of spiders and stuff like that. I'm talking more about the future, the unknown, what's going to happen next. And I think from the people I've talked to throughout my life, everyone at different times, in different ways and for different reasons, struggles with fear. Well, here in this passage, I think what God is doing is he is talking to Jacob about his fears and what we should do, what he should do in order to put his fear to death, in order to deal with his fear, in order to handle fear in a way that keeps you mostly sane. And so that's what he's doing here. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because of what God says to Jacob in verse 3. So go back to chapter 46 and verse 3. God's words to Jacob are, do not be afraid. So he's going after fear. Specifically, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. And I think his fears are are valid really for two reasons. The first is he's going to an unknown place. He's never been before. I don't know if you're like me, you go somewhere you've never been before, there could be anxiety and stress. Well, imagine packing up everything you have and moving somewhere that you've never been and you have no idea what to expect. Imagine you're 130 years old and you're moving to a new place that you've never been before, not knowing what to expect. I know personally, the older I get, the more fears creep in. And as I talk with other people, the older they get, it seems like fears come alive as people get older. And so this move has got to have them freaking out. I'm going somewhere I've never been before. I don't even know if he's thinking this is like the big city of Egypt. Um, But he's scared. So I think he's fearful for that reason. I also think he's fearful because he's not, he doesn't want to be out of God's will. I think it's a big deal. So if you remember, which I don't expect you to, back in chapter 6, his father Isaac was told very specifically, in a time of famine, there was famine. Egypt had tons of food. And God's words to Isaac were, don't go to Egypt. I mean, he flat out says it, point blank. And I'm sure that uh, Jacob heard his dad tell that story. There was lots of food in Egypt. God told me not to go. I didn't go and God provided. And so now Jacob's faced with his kids telling him, no, come to Egypt. And he's probably thinking, God told my dad not to go to Egypt. So what does he do? He goes as far as he's ever been before to Beersheba, and he prays. He offers sacrifices. He seeks God. And I have a feeling he's seeking God to say, hey, should I go? Is this something I should do? So we see that in verse, where is the verse it talks about? 
So he offers sacrifices. Let's look at verse 1. He's in verse 5. 46. Verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all of he had and came to Beersheba, again, the furthest he's ever been, and he offers sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. So he goes there. He offers the sacrifices at the furthest place that he's ever been before. And we got to remember, too, that Beersheba is a significant location because other times he's gone to Beersheba, what's happened? What happened to Beersheba with him? Do you remember the stairs? The ladder? Like, he, yeah, he, he met God there. And not only did he meet God there, but his father Isaac met God there. God spoke to Isaac there saying, don't go to Egypt in the famine. And God spoke to Abraham there. Actually, that's where God revealed himself to Abraham as the everlasting God. So there's history at this spot. It's like, you go back to that old place, we've encountered God before. And so that's what he does. He's like, I'm not going anywhere else until I go to God and talk to God. And so God responds, and God gives him five reasons to not fear. Five reasons to not fear. And so I test drove these five reasons this week, and I bought all of them. Because <laughs> they work. They're real. This is not a TED Talk this morning. I'm not giving you, hey, there's five reasons. Maybe you can help you with your fear. No, this is God saying, here's real ways for you to deal with your fear. Because he wants to help us in our fear. And, and I test drove all of them. I think maybe for you, just one of them is all you're going to need. You're like, that's it. And then, like I said, you can get up and walk out once you get your one, unless you want to stay for singing. Grab a hold of one, write the five down, take them with you. Because I'm guaranteeing you sometime in the next week or two, you're going to be faced with fear, or you're going to help somebody who's facing fear. And you're going to be able to pull one of these five out and really help somebody encounter God in their fears. So there's five of them. Each point I'm making, I'm just quoting what God says to Jacob. So these are quotes from God. I'm going to unpack them and tell you how they talk to his fear and how they talk to our fear. So you ready? Is anybody afraid to do this? So I'd ask. So number one, God, and I think this is the most significant one of all of them, is God just simply says to him, I am God. I'm not telling you anything this morning you don't already know, by the way. This is just how do I get what I know into my heart? And so that's what's happening here. I am God, God says to Jacob. I think this is a primary way for our, us to fight fear is to remember who is God and who's not God. And he's saying, look, Jacob, I'm God and you're not. Just to set the record straight, I am God. And it seems that one thing that would cultivate fear is when we forget that God is God. <laughs> Usually that's what happens in my heart. I forget that God is God. It seems that one thing that could cultivate fear could be the absence of God or thinking that I'm God in my future. I mean, there's all kinds of scenarios here that I run in my head. As I launch into the future, I don't know if you ever do that. Like, I think about the future and the worries and the stress and the possibilities and the anxieties. And do you know who's always in those futures? Me. And do you know who's very small or absent in those futures? God. I'm an atheist in my future. Not thinking that God will be there. Thinking that God is somehow limited to my present, but not in my future. And so God's reminding him here, I am God. So may we see... Tell Jacob, I tell myself, see God as vividly in my future as I see me in my future. May I see God as vividly in my future as I see my problems in my future. May I see God as vividly in my future as I see all of my worries and anxieties and fears in my future. 
So God wants him to know that he is God. And there's only one God. I mean, he's offering sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And I don't know whether he's thinking other people are offering sacrifices to the gods of their fathers. And so he's just making it clear here, oh, no, 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 there's just one. It's me. I'm God. And so he's setting the stage here for him that he is God. So I don't know what you think about when you think about your future, but I pray that God is there as vividly as your problems are there and your fears are there. So I almost want to say, let your imagination into the future run wild. Just take God with you into it. Have him at the center of it. Let him, let him be the God of the future and not your own fears and imaginations. So there's one, one thing. Second thing he says to him is simply this. Jacob, Jacob. Jacob, Jacob. And that can easily be overlooked, can it? But we can't overlook that. Because God is personally addressing him. And I think mentioning his name twice just to get his attention, just to make sure that Jacob knows that God is really talking to him, specifically, personally. So he calls him out, Jacob, Jacob, and he, and he speaks to him. I think another key ingredient to fighting fear is to know that God knows you by name. He knows you by name. And he doesn't just know you by name today. He knows you by name tomorrow and the next day. He knows you by name next year and 10 years from now. He knows you by name in your future where there's worry and where there's fear and where there's anxiety. He knows you. I know that we can feel like a face in the crowd or a social security number or one in a billion. But he knows the hairs on your head. How many are there? He knows everything there is to know about you. He knows you, and he's calling you by name. Some of you may are familiar with Isaiah 46, where it just comes out plain as day. Maybe you memorized this earlier in seasons where you fought fear, where God just simply says, but know this, know this, says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not. Why shouldn't I fear? Well, he created me and he formed me and he also redeemed me and he called me by name. You are mine. I mean, we don't have to go very far into the book of Colossians to see Jesus saying this. Paul saying to us about Jesus over and over again, you belong to Christ. Christ belongs to you. Your union with Christ. You belong to God. That, that should fight fear, knowing that God knows my name, I belong to him, and he is in my future. And he knows me personally. Listen, I remember years ago when this thought came into my head and I was talking with someone, he knows you better than you know you. There are things he knows about you that you don't know about you, there are things he knows about you that you will never know about you <laughs> because he knows you. He created you. He formed you. So fear not. God knows what's going on inside of you and outside of you. You have nothing to fear. There's a third thing he says to Jacob, and it's this. I will make you into a great nation. 
I will make you, and he actually says, there I will make you. In Egypt, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, this is significant because this means God is keeping his promise that he made to him. So we're going to look at this from two angles of things to grab a hold of when you're fearful. One is he's keeping promises. He made a promise to Jacob, and here he's sending him to a place he shouldn't be going according to God's schedule, although God's changing it now. And he's saying, don't worry, I'm going to make you great there. Now, to be a great nation, we saw this all the way back in chapter 12 with Abraham and in chapter 15 with Abraham and in chapter 26 with Isaac. To be a great nation, you need two things. You need land and you need people. If you're going to be a great nation, right? If you're going to be a great people, you've got to have people. And you've got to have land to live on. You've got to have people with you. And so God here in this chapter is giving them land and giving them people. So listen, this is, this is the key. This is why I think the focus of this passage is on this fear and what God is doing. I think what God says to Jacob in these first five verses actually gives us an outline for everything else that we read this morning. In other words, it's your outline. It's the structure. So he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, meaning I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you people. And then the rest of the chapter is all about God giving them land and God giving them people. Does that make sense? So God is talking to him, saying, here's what I'm going to do, and then he does it right here. It flows right out of it. So I don't know if you noticed, but in verses 5 to 27 of chapter 46, it's all about people. That's why the list of all the names of people and offspring. And then in verse 28 of the same chapter, all the way through 47, 12, it's all about the land of Goshen. Did you see that over and over again in that chapter? We've got land, land, land. It's 11 times. Uh, between verse 28 of 46 all the way through verse 12 of chapter 47, it's Goshen, land of Goshen, Goshen, land of Goshen, land of Goshen, land, land, land of Goshen, land, land. So 11 times. So the point is, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you everything you need in order to be the nation that I have called you to be. And then it comes to closure the very last part of verse 47, verse 27, he says this, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession of it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So we're bookending this. The chapter ends. They're blessed. They multiply greatly. How does it begin? It begins with God saying, I'm going to bless you and make you multiply greatly. So it's God keeping his promise. God's giving him everything that he needs in order to fulfill the things that God has called him to do. And so this is meant, I think, God telling him this, I'm going to, I'm going to do this, I'm going to keep my promise, is meant to help him go, ah, God said he's going to keep his promise. Now I know I've said to you all many times, and I'm going to keep saying it, Grab a hold of God's promises. Find promises in God's word and make them yours and cling to them and pray over them and cry over them that God will make them come true in your soul, that you'll believe them. So here's the promise. I'm going to bless you. And I think he's meant to cling to that as a way of fighting, fighting, fighting fear. So God wants to gather them together in this way. And I, I think it's clear how important this is. I was thinking this morning, how important land and people are to me. Imagine if I dropped you homeless with no one that you know in the middle of New York City. That would be horrible. Like, if I don't have people 
in my life, and I don't have a place that I can call home, whatever that is, that's pretty scary. And so I feel like God's giving him exactly what he needs so he doesn't have to fear those things, even though he's sending him all the way to the unknown place of Egypt. And I think God says the same thing to us. I think there's a parallel passage here in 1 Peter. We memorized this a while, a while ago where Peter says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So God owns us. Not just you, but us together. We're a people together. I feel like that's what Lydia testified to this morning. We're, we're a people. We're one. We're the body of Christ. And he tells us the purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who he called you. You've been called by him out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So the ultimate fulfillment of what God does here in Isaac's life, in Jacob's life, is for us. It comes through Christ. So now we're people. You're not alone this morning. We're part of something bigger than just us. And that's supposed to help drive out fear. Even the reality that we have one another is meant to drive out some fear. We're not in this alone. I don't want to be in this alone. I need you. We need each other. And so that meant, that's meant to drive out some of our fears that we're not in this journey alone. And so two applications. God's keeping his promises, and you're part of God's family. Let those two things help drive out fear in your life. Fourth thing, fourth thing God says, I myself will go down with you. I myself will go down with you. That's in verse 4. I mean, I think this is just meant to be a fear crusher. God is going to go with him all the way down into the unknowns of life. You got any unknowns? I have unknowns for this afternoon. And God's saying, I'm going to go down with you to Egypt, down into the place where you have no idea what is going to happen. He doesn't say, you go. He says, we're going together. I'm going to go with you down there. So maybe this is a believing question. Do you believe, as you imagine your future, that God is going to go with you all the way down to your Egypt? Whatever that is. That he's going to be with you all the way down to wherever your imagination can go, to the worst places and the worst future you can imagine. Do you believe that he's going to go down there with you? Whatever your Egypt is, whatever your unknown is, whatever your anxiety is, your fear is, that he is going to go down there with you, that he's going to be with you. God wants Jacob to believe this, that he's not going to be left alone and abandoned. And, so I'm reading the story going, okay, this chapter shows us what happens. How was God with Jacob? How did God care for Jacob? How did God manifest the help that Jacob needed in the story? And I realized it was all through his son. It was through Joseph. Do you realize how, how Joseph-centric this story is? I mean, I hear God's me with him, but then I don't read anything about God for the rest of the whole story. His name's not there. I didn't see it. But whose name is over and over and over again? Joseph. Who's calling the shots? Joseph. I mean, Joseph is really telling everyone what to do. It's, it's absolutely 
crazy when you think about it. Joseph is telling brothers in chapter 46, 31 through 47, 7 is all about Joseph calling the shots. He tells them, I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh for you. Then he goes and talks to Pharaoh. He tells the brothers what to say when they go to Pharaoh. He only takes five of them, because I guess there were only five sharp enough to remember the story. And the rest of them, he's like, I don't, you guys, don't blow it, you guys. Like, I'm just going to take you five with me. He gets them into the presence of Pharaoh so that they can talk to Pharaoh. And then he takes his father to Pharaoh, and he sets him up with a meal, a meeting with Pharaoh. So Joseph is orchestrating this entire thing, and they need Joseph there because what do, the, what do the Egyptians and Pharaoh think about shepherds? They're an abomination. Shepherds throughout all the Bible history, they're the guys who steal sheep. They're the guys who don't care if your sheep falls off a cliff. They're going to kill your sheep and eat it and say that it died in the woods. They were liars. They were bad. Side note, that's why when Jesus comes and says, I'm the good shepherd, they're like, there's no such thing as a good shepherd. Shepherds are wicked. And so they need Joseph to stand there in front of Pharaoh to get them presence with him because he doesn't want to be with them. Because they're shepherds. And it says clearly they're an abomination. They're an abomination to the Egyptians. So it's almost like Joseph is some sort of mediator between people who are an abomination and a king. It's almost like he stands between the most powerful king in the universe and the wicked, loathsome peasants and gives them the opportunity to stand before the king to receive blessing. It's almost like something better than Joseph is here. It's almost like something's being foreshadowed here. As Joseph leads people who have no right and no ability to get before the king, and he leads them into the presence of the king, and they get a chance to talk to the king, and the king responds and blesses them. He actually blesses them with more than they even asked for. He gives them the best of the land. They just wanted some land in Goshen. He's given it all to them. But do you see the picture? I think that's being painted here. I mean, you and I, oh, we need a mediator. We need a mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is clear. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. You need someone to mediate between you and God. But he's got to be God to represent God, and he's got to be man to represent you. And so what happens? Christmas happens, right? The God-man. So he can stand between you and the Father and represent both of us and mediate and make it possible through his blood for us to stand before the Father and have a conversation with him. See, God may have sent Joseph so they could be in the presence of a king, but God sent Jesus so we could be in the presence of the king. And that's the difference. Somebody better, somebody better than Joseph is here. And we need that redeemer. We need Jesus to be our mediator we need him to stand there on his throne of grace and make us right before the Father. So let's drive out some fear this morning. If you are headed down into the unknown of your Egypt, whatever that is, know that Jesus himself wants to go down with you and that he's able to bless you down in your Egypt because he's able to mediate for you before the Father 
so that your sins can be forgiven and you can receive mercy and grace in your time of need. I think, I don't have my notes, but I had asked Andrew, do we have uh, Hebrews 7, is it 14? Yes. Consequently, he, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Joseph lived to make intercession for them for a tiny little while in a minuscule way. Jesus, on the other hand, always lives to make intercession for you. (laughs) To make intercession for you. So know this. Jesus is already in your future. He's sitting on his throne, and he's waiting for you. He's waiting. He's already there. So picture him going with you down to your Egypt, knowing when you get there, he's already sitting on the throne, ready to give you full access to the Father, to get any blessing and any help you need in your time of need. Let that help you with your fear. And lastly, number five, not only is he going to go down with him into his Egypt, but look what he says. I will also bring you up again. (laughs) I'm going to bring you up again. Jacob knows that Goshen is not where God wants him to eventually land. That's why the word sojourning is used a couple of times in these conversations. He knows we're going to sojourn, but the ultimate destiny is the land of Canaan. That's where God had promised. So he knows I'm just traveling through. Listen, he has to go through a time down in Egypt in order to get to the promised land. Don't need to interpret that for anybody. (laughs) I think often we have to go through our time in Egypt before we get to our promised land. And so God comforts him and says, look, I'm going to go down with you, but then I'm also going to bring you up. I'm going to go down with you, and I'm going to bring you up. Listen, God is going to be with you in all of your going down and in all of your coming up. He's going to. He's going to be there. So as you imagine, whatever it is for you, the next month, the next year, the next 10 years, and you find fear in your heart, know that there's going to be all kinds of ups and downs. There's going to be downs and downs and downs. And he's going to be with you. And then he's going to bring you up out of those. I can't say when, I can't say how. But he's going to be there, and he's going to bring you up out of your Egypt. He goes down with you, and he's going to come up with you. And even Jacob recognizes this. If you caught what he said before Pharaoh in chapter 47, verse 9, he says, Few and evil have been the days of my life. Few and evil. The word evil there is the word for adversity, affliction, distress, trials. So what he's saying is life is short and life is hard. What are those shirts that have like little, little stick people on it and it says life is good? We should make one that says life is short, life is hard. Because that's reality. It's good, but it's hard and it's short. And, and Jacob saw that. He said life is hard, life is short, life is challenging, life is brief, life is filled with distress. Yet in all the ups and downs, God is going to be with you. He's going to be with you. He'll be with you, leading you down, and he's going to be leading you back up again. And he has reasons for doing it. We don't always know all the reasons. I wish I did. It would make the going down a heck of a lot easier if I knew why I was going down. But he doesn't always tell us. But I think there's two little hints in the story, which I think are helpful. Not the only reasons, but it looks like that Jacob goes down into Egypt 
And when he gets before Pharaoh, do you see what he does when he goes into Pharaoh and what he does when he comes out of Pharaoh's presence? He blesses him. And I think the language there is on purpose. He goes into Pharaoh, pronounces a blessing. And then when he goes out of Pharaoh, he pronounces another blessing. And we know the greater always blesses the lesser. So I don't know how he got away with that one in Pharaoh's presence. But obviously he was able to. Pharaoh knew something was up and he pronounced a blessing over him. So I think one of the ways or reasons we go down is often maybe to bless people around us that don't have access to the king. And maybe that's what he's calling us to do because if you read the rest of the story, do you see how Pharaoh is blessed? I mean, the blessing that's on Pharaoh is crazy. Look at chapter 47, verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. So now Pharaoh's getting land and people because Jacob blesses him. Do you see the promise to Abraham being fulfilled? People that bless him, he's going to bless. And that's what's happening. It's being fulfilled. And maybe a second thing I see here. Why do we go down, down, down? And I think verse 25 tells us another reason in chapter 47. They all gather together and they look at Joseph and they say to him, you have saved our lives. I mean, those are his, their words to him. You've saved our lives. We would all starve to death except for you. You have saved our lives. And I wonder if sometimes God takes us down into the fearful unknown so that on the way up we can say, you saved my life. Literally, maybe. Figuratively, spiritually, relationally, I don't know. But I think there's a reality that God takes us down to our Egypt, whatever that is, places of fear. He says, I'm going to be with you so you can be a blessing to others. And so you'll be able to say at the end of the day, God saved my life. God saved me. Because I hadn't gone down into the down, I don't know where I would have ended up. So maybe we embrace the reality that God is going to be with you going down and God is going to be with you going up. And we know that Jesus being alive makes all of this a fresh reality because we know that he is with us. So five things, there they are. God is God. He knows you by name. He keeps all his promises. He's going to be with you and you're going down. He's going to be with you and you're coming up. And I pray, I'm going to pray in a moment for us, that this week, this month, this year, you're able to tuck those five things away in your back pocket. And when you have fear, you pull one out. You pull two out. And you battle your fear with the realities that God puts before us. Don't go into your future, in your brain, without God at the center. Don't do it. Don't do it believing that he's going to leave you or abandon you. Have him be front and center in the whole drama that plays out in your brain. So I'm going to pray. I'm looking for you. Let's pray. And we're going to... Uh, I want to take a minute. I just want you to sit for a minute. I want you to process. Maybe pick one of the five. Take a minute and just pray that God would help you, whatever the fear is. And then I'm going to pray for you after that. So let's just take a minute of quiet. Alex is going to play something. I'm going to pray. Yeah, after. I'm going to get um, kids. I'll let them get their kids.
glad that when we tell you that we're fearful of the future, that you don't correct us, that you're not exasperated by us, but that you, Jesus, were tempted in every way that we are, and you are yet never sinned, so you know what it's like to face a future that is fearful, scary, and you're there to meet us on a throne of grace to give us mercy and help in our time of need. So Father, I'm sure that my friends in this room face fears of different kinds, different reasons, different flavors. And so I, I pray for them, God, that your spirit would help them. I pray that one of these five realities that you spoke to Jacob, I pray that you'd speak it to them right now. I pray you'd help us to hear you say our name twice and then to pick one of these five things to emphasize in our hearts that we might be able to fight fear and deal with our fears. Father, I, I pray for anybody here this morning who is crushed by fear. Maybe fears that keep them in bed in the morning and keep them up all night. God, I pray this morning you would set them free. I ask that your Holy Spirit would take one or two of these truths and work them deep down in their souls in a way that would give them freedom. That fear would be weakened and faith in who you are would rise to the surface. God, protect us from the lies of the enemy. He wants us to imagine our future without you. And so we pray you bind him up. He has no right lying to us because of Jesus. And Jesus, I pray that you would be quick to assist our minds by being the biggest character in our future. That everything else would be small. And that when we look ahead, we would only see you large, reigning with us caring for us, knowing us, leading us, loving us. God, may we find joy in thinking about the future because we know that no matter what we face, you're going to be there. So help us, help us, help us. I pray today would be a setting free day for some of us. That we would enjoy today knowing that You've got tomorrow and everything else all taken care of. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.